1: This is Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and today we're going to do cosmic queries. With my co-host Nagin Farsad. Nagin, welcome back to Star Talk.
2: Oh my God! Hello, thank you so much for having me, Neil. H- hello.
1: So you, 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 you're getting around. this first, you had this book.
2: What is it? <laughs>
1: How to make white people laugh? What was the name of that book?
2: It correct. It was. It's called How to Make White People Laugh. I remembered it. <laughs>
1: That's right. <laughs> That's because you technically are not a white person. You're something else.
2: Yes, I'm just like this. Uh, Bag of ethnic is what I like to call myself. Bag of
1: ethnicity. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, you were born I'm, where?
2: I'm, a, I'm one of the one of these nice Iranian-American Muslims.
1: Okay. And talking about white people. Okay. Yeah.
2: That's what, looking at America and figuring it out. Yeah. That, no,
1: don't even try because we can't even figure it out. I don't know. Um, and also you are a host of, wait, let me, let me remember, Uh Fake
2: the Nation? Oh, my gosh. Neil, Um, your memory is so good Um, right now. Someone's taking their vitamins. Yeah. (laughs) It's Fake the Nation, a political comedy podcast, which you have also been on. I
1: have been on it, and it's on uh, SiriusXM, if memory serves.
2: Uh, we actually just moved over to HeadGum, but we think very fondly of those serious days.
1: Yes, okay, very good. And I enjoyed my time on that, and I just know that I haven't gotten a second invitation, that's all.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's okay, I'll, you know, d- I'll deal with it. it's a very exclusive club, <laughs> Neil, and we'll get to you when we get to you. <laughs> uh,
1: today, we have, for Cosmic Queries, uh, one of my colleagues and I love it when we have one of my colleagues, because whatever astronomy I know, we're bringing them in because they know more of whatever it is we're talking about. <laughs> so <laughs> they're, they're like, they're boosters for anything I could possibly do <laughs> in the show. And this is Aomawa Shields. And I, and I, please help me pronounce your first name, A- Aomawa. I- That's
3: it, Aomawa. I-
1: I get it. I get a, a, a B plus, at least for that. <laughs> Omaha, it's, it's been a delight. Uh, we haven't, I haven't seen you in, in almost 15 years. Uh, great to have you on the program. And to learn that over that time, you've become an expert in the search for exoplanets and the possible signatures of life. This is really hot stuff. And anytime there's any progress in that field, I am glued to the research papers just to, to figure out where you guys have coming from, where you are, and where you're going. And we've got a Cosmic Queries focused on that. So I think we're all in on you there. So just let me get, get a little bit of your background here. You're an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at UC Irvine. Very cool. Beautiful campus there, by the way. And... Uh, you're specializing in Earth-sized planets orbiting low-mass stars. I think low-mass stars are, like, very popular in the galaxy, right? They sure are. <laughs> They're more, uh, more low-mass stars than any other kind of star, so you, you're hedging that? your bets there, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Wait, so if low-mass stars were on TikTok, would they be the viral sensation?
3: It's <laughs> 70%. 70% okay. of all stars. Okay, Okay.
2: now I understand.
1: (laughs) That's how how they roll. And (laughs) we will add to that the fact that before she went on to get her PhD in astronomy, she got a master's in fine arts, in acting. 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 (laughs) And so how do you combine acting and modern (laughs) astrophysics? You can use that theater background to help communicate science. And, and this is what she's been doing. And you've got a website here. It's called risingstargirls.org. I love it. Uh, it's promoting sort of uh, interest in science among girls of all colors and all uh, all stripes. Uh, girls have been sort of un- uh, underrepresented over the decades, uh, not only in astronomy, but all sciences. And so this is this is wonderful. And it's great to have you here. Aomua.
3: Thank you so much, Neil, for having me here. Um, it's really a, an honor, and I'm, I'm excited to, to hear the Cosmic Queries and to talk about my background.
1: Yeah, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll dip in to see how your background can inform or enhance what we know or what edu- education uh, steps you've taken over your career, because I'm very much interested in that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the arts, or uh, capital A so uh, you know the, the painting sculpting performing writing and to have notice, you Notice
2: notice he did not say comedy just no, no. To, <laughs> to
0: point that out
1: <laughs> You need a really capital A for arts if I'm going to include okay. comedy <laughs> <laughs> So uh, oh how how have your how has your website worked what, what is, how does it work uh, mechanically That someone logs in and then they see material there and and, and Take me through an encounter that a girl might have with your website.
3: Yes. So the Rising Star Girls is a program that I put together. It's been about six years now since it was officially a thing. Um, I had started back in grad school um, doing outreach to middle school girls of color. And I would always have some kind of interactive component. I would bring them to the planetarium at the University of Washington where I was a, a PhD student and I'd show them a planetarium show and then we might do some kind of a, a project together like making their own little uh star charts that they could take with them. And sometimes I would do a theater game with them and I found that they really enjoyed that. And I think part of that was they... They knew they couldn't get it wrong. Um, middle school is that age where girls start to get quiet. They start to raise their hands less often. they
1: That's become, where you lose them. That's right. That that's middle right. school. Be- oh, my gosh.
3: Yeah, they become more focused on, on their appearance and less focused on how they think and feel about the world. And so that's the crucial age. Um, that's what the literature says. And and then, of course, girls of color, they're in jeopardy because on top of the the, the age group, issue. Um, They're also young women of color and um, there's just not any role models or not many in STEM for them. And so um, I thought, you know, how can I put my theater background that I had um, together with the astronomy background and help these girls realize that there is so much more to them than meets the eye Um, and that, that what they think and feel about the world and the universe is actually not just important, but critical to their involvement in learning about the universe. We didn't just want to pummel them with facts. They would have to regurgitate in class. We actually wanted to um, help them to feel connected to the universe and to that star or that galaxy or that planet they were learning about in hopes that if they felt connected, for example, like by writing a poem about that planet or that star or um, Drawing a picture about an exoplanet that could actually exist, making up a name for it, making decisions about whether it actually had life or not—that um, they could look up in the sky and say, "That's my star. That's my galaxy." I wrote a poem about it. I, you know, to take actual ownership of what they were learning, and that that, in hopes that that would, once they, and you know, hopefully continue on in astronomy that they would feel that connection and that that connection would stay put once the heavy math came in.
1: Um. So that's been well known where if you name something, it becomes a little more personal. And uh, I'm omnivorous. And so uh, when I buy a lobster and I'm about to cook it, I try to name it first, just that I feel a little more deeply for it when I Plunge it headfirst into the boiling water. Uh, so, so
3: but <laughs> this is exactly that, what I'm, I'm talking about.
1: This is exactly so you understand. it's the same thing. It's, it's the <laughs> same thing. Yeah,
3: I, 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 I was just thinking about that like exact that analogy.
1: <laughs> 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 no, but I, uh, NASA, of course, names all their rovers, and and there's a participatory dimension to that that I think yes. goes very far. That's in the, in educational circles, but but wait a minute! If you thought of I read a little on your bio, you thought of making acting a career. But this of the universe.
3: I actually kind of sort of did for a while. I mean, I, descended I upon I, you.
1: Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, so I what pulled you back?
3: Yeah, I mean, I always had a day job. Um, I had you know I had started a PhD program right out of undergrad. Um, and I sort of did that because that's what you did. And I didn't really, it wasn't really a conscious choice. Um, that PhD program was in astrophysics and I had started it, did one year, but I was incredibly divided. I, I, um, I, people would talk about what movie they'd gone to see or the Oscars that were coming up and I was, oh, you know, I, I would perk up then and, <laughs> um, but like the problem sets and the, you know, I was just, I, I wasn't. I wasn't focused. and
1: Weren't feeling it. Weren't feeling it. Yeah.
3: So, and I didn't, I looked around and, you know, I did have an African-American man who was my advisor. So there, I wasn't the only, the only person of color in the department, but I was the only student of color, the only woman of color. And I didn't see a lot of astronomers around who not only looked like I did, but sort of acted like I did. Like I had this thing where I really liked wearing makeup i liked fashion magazines i liked um to wear nice clothes i I dressed pretty fashionably and i didn't really see that as much of a
1: (laughs) yes the opposite really just the opposite really
3: care about that
1: i'm thinking it's Um, kind of the opposite
3: so so there were all of these things like and and yeah, I. So I Aom- to-
1: Aomua, what yes. you did was you 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 had a little checklist of all the things to make sure
3: you didn't belong.
2: exactly
3: <laughs> exactly, and I was looking. I was looking. I'm I am picturing for
2: you. I'm picturing like a devil devil wears Prada astrophysics oh, edition. Yes. Oh yeah, right? there you go. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I and
3: mean, it was always like I was building a case from the moment I got there. And everything was like, yes, oh yeah, check, check, check. These are the these are the reasons why I shouldn't be here. And when the opportunity presented itself in the form of a stodgy white old male professor who said, "Consider other career options," I I took him up on it. Um, and it was so. Just to it. be
1: clear, it's not that you intentionally did these things to be different. It's that these were part of who you were, and that identity did not have receptors in the environment where you were to get your PhD. And so that mismatch then sent you to an off-ramp. Is that a fair way to characterize it?
3: I think that's fairly accurate. I mean, I, I can't blame it all on the outside forces. There was a lot going on internally that I take responsibility for. I think if I had known, really really known the way I did 11 years later, what I wanted to do, there was nothing that would have stopped me from doing it. Um, but I didn't. I didn't know that then, and I was very sort of um, on the edge of a precipice. Anything could have anything could have tossed me over, and so I ended up going in the other direction. And
1: well, wait, so um, okay, so you're so you took this off ramp, and now you're a professional actor for a bit. For a and let me, but and
2: first, but first I had guess, to go to
3: school. Mm-hmm.
2: And let me guess, your parents love the idea of you going into acting.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, here's here's the odd thing about it: they're both performers. <laughs> they're both they're both oh, performers and, and have been okay. their entire lives. So, but the but the answer is still yes. They were like, oh God. <laughs> um, they didn't want that life for me. They were very excited about me having what they considered a much more dependable career as a scientist. Although it's certainly, as everyone who's a scientist knows, it's hard to get a job in science after you get your PhD. Um, those jobs, but plus, if I,
1: if memory like, serves, you also got romantically involved with an actor.
3: I know, so and Then there was, like no okay. <laughs> there was no going back. Okay. There was no going back. Okay. But they were like, I think it. I think they loved the idea of being able to say, even though they were performer, performer, having a daughter they could say who was an astrophysicist was, was pretty awesome. And so they, like they gave a street
1: of, cred at the parties. Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> but
3: I burst that bubble and was like, I'm going back into the family business, so to speak. And I think that they were certainly fearful. You know, how is she going to make a living? And But they wanted me to be happy above all else, and so they supported that. And yeah, I, I I sort of during that first year in that PhD program, I applied on the DL to MFA acting programs. I had done that during senior year. Under on the
1: DL is on the down low. On the down low. Excuse me. Okay, (laughs) okay. just have get get the lingo. (laughs) Okay. Okay.
3: (laughs) But and so I had applied to acting grad schools actually, along with astrophysics grad schools during um, my last year at mit uh, in undergrad but i hadn't got I, I went for the fences with those i applied to yale uh the globe at u c san Diego and um n y u so famous school, acting
1: places yes. yes yes, and
3: i hadn't gotten into those and I was like, but I did get into astrophysics grad school so i i went. So when the second time around, I when I was like, I'm gonna apply again. I sort of spread the net more widely, and I rode these sort of secret buses to Chicago from Madison, Wisconsin,
1: on the wow. DL.
3: <laughs> on the DL, <laughs> and um, applied and got into uh, the MFA program at UCLA, and decided to defer from my PhD astrophysics program at Wisconsin Madison, and I moved out to LA and and started acting school there. And, I mean, I had Can like, I just say,
2: it's just, yeah. you also seem like, I mean, what it sounds like so far is that you've been to a crap ton of school. <laughs> <laughs> is that an accurate assessment? I'm collecting assessment? degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I collect, yes. So now it's like there's PhD,
3: there's an MFA, and, and I think you do the terminal degree, so you don't put the right, the right, uh, SCD right. out
1: there. But, yes. Okay, but before we take a break, I just want to know, was it, the North Star that called you back. Uh, what, what? What cosmic force said, uh-uh? Or, or was was it, "Come back to us. <laughs> we want you." Was it oh my the God. whisper of the wind through the trees in the in the in the moonless, cloudless night as the universe poured from the sky back into your veins?
3: It was smog. smog. What? <laughs> <laughs> so I, had, you know, I, I handed gonna,
1: you a poetic thing, you could have said, Yeah, that was it, and we could have moved on.
3: <laughs> Being able I'm driving through the streets of LA to, you know, odd audition after audition in these like cold fluorescent lit, fluorescently lit rooms, casting rooms, and and having my like day job at working for a cultural nonprofit and and Every once in a while, my eyes like crane up through the windshield and I try to see through through the smog, through the clouds. And sometimes I'm able to see a couple stars and sometimes nothing. But like when I was able to see a couple stars, it sort of like shot me back in my seat like, oh, that that was another life. And then I pretend I hadn't seen it and just get back to like driving in gridlock and, you know, trying to get to my job. and put my flyers for different cultural programs around the city. and But I kept, that kept happening. And I thought, someone asked me, a friend asked me, like, did you miss astronomy? Because you could probably get a better paying day job doing that than your little cultural arts nonprofit or your temp jobs. I once pulled staples out of paper for a year and a half for a, a, a music publishing company that had to have all of their contracts scanned. <laughs> <laughs> they had to have them all scanned, so they had they hired three temps to sit in a room and pull staples out of the. Context. You can't
4: scan
1: documents that are stapled together. You just
2: can't. Yeah, you just can't. That's great. You know, I just want to say, as a, a still a, a comedian and an actor, I still go to auditions, and sometimes I look up into the sky, and then I think to myself, like I could really eat a burger right now. So very similar. <laughs> That's a different
1: thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I still like the fact that you you had applied to uh, pre- premier acting schools, and they rejected you, so I guess I'll have to go to astrophysics graduate school. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> it reminds me, there's a Gary Larson comic where Plenty. Einstein was playing basketball, right? And the caption is... Um, uh, Albert Einstein was going to be a star basketball player until an ankle injury turned him to physics, <laughs> and then he became a <gasps> physicist.
3: <laughs> oh my God!
1: We got to take a quick break, but when we come back, more with Aomawa Shields and her, the story of her life, and we're going to bring in some cosmic queries that tap her expertise on planets around other stars and the possibility of life on the star. Park.
0: Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship from a ride on bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at the Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any carnival's dazzling bars and lounges and take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family style italian then settle in for an evening of live entertainment whatever your vibe is you'll come home with plenty of stories to tell so pack those bags be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like carnival
3: I'm Joel Cherico, and I make pottery. You can see my pottery on my website, cosmicmugs.com. Cosmic Mugs, art that lets you taste the universe every day. And I support Star Talk on Patreon. This is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson.
1: We're back. Star Talk, Cosmic Queries. I got my co host, Nagin Farsad. Always good to have you here, Nagin.
2: Oh, so happy to be here.
1: Yeah. And we have with us Aomoa Shields, a colleague of mine at University of California, Irvine. And she specializes in planets orbiting stars in the search for life. And to me, that's the hottest topic in all of science, not just within astrophysics. And uh, Nagin, you've collected uh, cosmic queries for her. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I'm here to either just not say anything, or because <laughs> this <laughs> is all for you. Uh, but if uh, if if there's something I think I can contribute, I, I will. But probably not. So uh, let's jump right in.
2: Um well we um actually before we get into some of the more sciencey questions, Jaraj Petrovic on Patreon um just asked uh, he, he wants to know, he talked about Alan Alda dedicating a lot of time and money and effort into educating scientists about how to communicate with the general public and asked of you, how has your acting uh, training helped you communicate with your students and with the general public about your research and discoveries? And has it helped any way in getting funding for your research?
3: Mm, I love that question. Um, thank you for asking it. You know, when I first came back to grad school, so the second time around, I had it had been eleven years between my PhD program in astrophysics, the first one, and the second one, which I started in the fall of two thousand nine. And I had my MFA in acting by that time. And you so know, you're, i are
1: actually seventy years old. Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you the name of my, my dermatologist. It's fantastic. <laughs> yes. Um, so I had a trifecta of issues that made for like fertile soil for the imposter syndrome to take root. I ha- I was an African-American female in a field dominated by white men.
1: Just to be clear, um, the, af- the the imposter syndrome is where you are actually qualified to do what you're doing, but your confidence doesn't measure up Gadget, to that, yeah. and, you, right. and you're left uh, uh, uncomfortable in that setting. Did, did I capture that right? Uh,
3: That's right. So I've, I yeah, felt okay. like at any, at any moment, I was going to be found out for the fraud that I was. You know, African-American female, um, older returning students. I was 34 years old the second time around, starting a PhD program with everyone else was straight out of undergrad, so they were like 22, 23. Um, and I was a classically trained actor in an astronomy PhD program. And that last part is why that's the connection to this question because I thought at first that I had to sort of sweep that like unseemly foray into the humanities under the rug. People in the department were like, they thought it was really cool lunchtime talk, like, oh, you have this MFA in acting, and I was like, yeah, 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 but I'm here for astronomy. Um, I my very first journal club talk, a journal club talk is when. Um, For grad students, usually you present someone else's paper, so a paper that someone else has written about some astronomical phenomenon, um, in like a 20-minute talk. You kind of do an overview of the paper, maybe show a few of the figures from the paper, and then take questions. And my first talk, the first one that I had to give, it was like I went completely deer in the headlights, It wasn't the presentation part, that part I was fine with. I I was a classically trained actor. I was used to getting up in front of people and talking. But what I wasn't used to was people talking back to me, asking me questions. There's this thing in in the theater called the fourth wall, which is an invisible (laughs) wall between all of us performing up here on stage and the audience. And nobody breaks that fourth wall unless they're invited. Um, like in some kind of call and response. So the fact that in a science talk, people can ask questions during a talk, after the talk, even before the talk. Wait, Nagin, let me just clarify
1: here. What she's saying is people are up in your face.
2: Yeah, so um, what I'm (laughs) saying is- It's not just (laughs) sitting back.
1: It's like, wait a minute. Is that-
2: (laughs) What They're I'm like hearing coming at me is that like academia right. academia. This is what it sounds like. It sounds like a comedy club on a Saturday night at 10 PM where you're <laughs> got a lot of drunk hecklers. That's what academia is sounding like to me right now. Is that accurate?
0: <laughs> is That's it how minus the alcohol ball, I think. <laughs> were
2: you essentially being heckled by uh astrophysicists?
3: <laughs> That's how I took it. That's how I took it. I had no I see, and this is like I, I came so far over the course of that five years because now what I see a science talk is is it's a conversation it's a discussion people ask you questions because they actually care and are interested and care about what you've presented in fact not getting questions is worse than get than than, it's so much worse because that means people probably fell asleep or they just want to get to lunch so it's actually and and again if
1: someone finds an error in her work First of all, that's good. Second, you want it to happen there.
2: Yes. <laughs> For sure. So Wait, like people who that, are
1: actually your right. your local colleagues, right? And not that's out right. in the out in So there.
2: I take it there isn't a bouncer at the lecture halls <laughs> that like ejects people who are asking no. too many questions. Yeah. There's no it one. Should that, be.
3: There's no it one that be.
2: that will protect you.
3: You know, and 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 I and I certainly <laughs> felt it felt like a verbal assault when I was knew when I was, you know, when I didn't when I wasn't able to see the the other side of it. Right. And so I, I remember talking to a professor um later about it and he was like, you know, take a moment, take a breath when someone asks a question, take a breath, let it land. And then if you have information, if you have something to contribute, say, you know, say it. If you don't, say, I don't know. I can look that up and get back to you end of story like it didn't have to be the big deal that it was in my head. Um right. and so now so many years after that what I can say is this my acting background absolutely does not only contribute but it it makes me such a much better scientist than I would have been without it because not only can I communicate the significance of my research results and I can do it in ways that people who are not scientists would understand. Without talking down to them, without assuming they know things that they may not have decided to learn yet, Um, I know how to do that because of the acting background. And I also know how to network because that's all that acting is, is like (laughs) you have to like introduce yourself at parties. And like, I knew how to be a marketer. And as a scientist, you actually are a business person. You got to market yourself. You got to get out and shake it, so to speak, and um, to get that next job or that next you know,
2: that, that, so wait, Neil, Neil, are you inspired at all to get an MFA in acting hearing all of this?
1: Well, so here's what happened. I've been asked on occasion to give, like, cameo appearances. And, like, I'm actually I'm in six, is it six, five or six feature-length films in very small cameo roles playing myself or someone very uh, approximating myself. And if you look at the early ones, uh, I suck. <laughs> It was like, there's this gap between my first couple appearances and the next time, because people said, we're not invited in back at all. So, but but this sign kind of baptism, rather than a formal training, I think I've gotten better at this over the years. And I have to agree with Aomawa, it is definitely infuses Every aspect of how you interact with people and how you communicate, your facial expressions, your body language, your, your gestures, how you're thinking about how the person is thinking about what you're saying. All that an actor has to think about when they're performing. And so, yes, I, I, I have to agree. But Omawa has, has got it the formal training where she can dig deep into that far deeper than any place I ever have to go uh, in my own profile. But let me add something, uh, because the, the question uh, started off mentioning Alan Alda. I don't know how many people know, but Alan Alda used to host Scientific American Presents. I, I was, I, it might have been Science Channel or Discovery Channel. And so he, was, he liked science, and he's always liked science. And he would walk into a lab and be just like a regular person asking blunt Questions. And he noticed that scientists had a hard time figuring out how to communicate back with him. And he said he wants to change that. And so he co founded an entire school at the State University of New York, Stony Brook on Long Island, where their their whole purpose is to train professors and graduate students how to communicate the science that is their profession. And, uh, but, Omaha was like doing this from scratch. And so you're the OG.
3: (laughs) Well, I love, I love his center. I've spoken with, um, with people at his center. I love the, what they're dedicated to. Um, it's very close to my heart and it's, you know, there's a course that I teach now here at UC Irvine that's communication skills for physicists and astronomers. And it's, you know, not just how to put a talk together, but how to Deliver that talk to a broad range of audiences. And the same thing, like Neil was saying, you have to, when you give a science talk, there's an objective, just like an actor in a scene on stage or in a movie. And it's not just say the lines. The objective might be, you know, to get the person to give me the money, to get all the way to the other side of the bridge. Like you have, in, in acting school, we learn you have to have an objective with every scene. It's the same thing as a scientist. What do I want to do? In this talk? Do I want to inspire? Do I want to? Um, Wait, to all the while, are you saying
1: it's real when actors say, What's my motivation? That's a real
2: thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs>
1: I didn't want to believe that was a real thing, but you're telling me that's a real thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, well, you, ask Elmo,
2: you ask Elmoa, you ask Elmoa, what's your motivation at any point? And she's just going to say smog, you know? <laughs> that's so.
1: right. The, that was what motivated the whole thing. <laughs> the motivation. <laughs> Let's go to get another question.
2: Let's get it. Okay, so we have, actually, Zeki Majed, Brad Winter, and Chase Kimes from uh, Patreon all asked about terraforming. Um, and so, basically, Basically, the question is like how possible is terraforming with our current technology? Do we have enough public interest to actually pursue it? I love it. What do you I think? Love it.
1: Go for it. And tell us what terraforming is first.
2: Well,
3: my understanding of terraforming is the, the principle behind it is that we would change or we would be dedicated to the action of, of trying to change a planet, an existing planet's environment, atmosphere, ecosystem to be more um, uh, amenable to life as we would want it. Um, so perhaps creating an environment in the most extreme case, which I, you know, out of a, a Mars or a Venus, you might want to create an earth. And how would you go about doing that? Um, and so that you could create a planet where life could actually survive and thrive.
1: But now, the I way think- you began your answer there, it sounds like this is not, in the near future.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's You began saying, it's kind
1: of, we think it could be, like, maybe this is what we <laughs> might think of doing. It sounds like this is not well, around the corner.
3: The tentativeness that you picked up in my voice is more related to my, to be honest, moral stance on the concept of terraforming than any sort of scientific Well,
1: are you all stance. getting Star Trek on this? Prime directors do not interfere
3: well, with... Well, it's... It's more of a, it is more of a should we than could we question for me. Um, and there are beyond Star Trek, there actually are other scientists, Lucianne Walkowitz, who has an excellent TED talk about this, this whole um, question of let's not use Mars as a backup planet. Um, this idea of, yes, let's go explore. Let's go explore so that we have environments as backup in case we screw up the earth too badly to be
2: repaired.
1: Um, and that is this is, like is this like a dog peeing on all the trees that, that are out there? Is this, is this the same thing?
2: Well, I mean, I feel, I, like, I feel like this is when I buy um, a pair of pants that are like clearly two sizes too small, and I'm always like, I'll get there, you know what I mean? But I know <laughs> I'm never really gonna get there. I just wasted money on a pair of pants, you know? It's wishful so,
1: thinking. But but, but <laughs> right. what is the morality if the, the, this? Okay, wait. So let's unpack this. It's one thing to say why you're making Mars a backup plan. Why don't you just tend to Earth as we should? So that's one moral posture. Another posture is uh, these other planets. They might have life of their own, and we're just taking over. But if you confirm that they don't have life of their own, what's your what's your problem? What, you got any problem? You got a problem with that?
3: <laughs> hmm. Interesting question.
1: Yeah. If, it, if the planet is sterile then who cares if you pitch 10th there?
3: Yeah, I'd have to think more about that. Uh, There is an entire planetary protection department at places like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, NASA's JPL, that is devoted to this, this, like that question of, we make sure that we don't, we don't bring life with us to some place where we're looking for life and think, oh, we found life, but the life we found was the life we brought with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Somebody sneezed yeah, right. on the detector, yeah. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and also, if we got there to make sure that, you know, that, we're, that our detection equipment is um, robust enough to be able to pick up on the life that we would imagine might be there. But here's the thing, how, would we, how could we be sure that a planet... Absolutely, unequivocally was completely sterile and had no life or promise of life evolving on that planet so, such that we could then shape it and mold it however we want.
1: Oh, so you could um, just sterilize it yourself. and then
3: <laughs> that's Yeah, you that's one way. Ser- <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> actually, <one> <laughs> I mean, I, I have people very close to me feel, feel quite differently about this. Um, my husband and I have debates about this all the time. I think he would st- take that stance of like, yeah, if there's not life on there. Why? But the thing is, life as we know it might be very different from other life. Life that doesn't have water as its primary solvent. Everything on Earth, everything from the tiniest microbe to the largest elephant, everything requires water.
1: I I saw a cool comic where two aliens crashed in the desert. And they're like crawling along the the dunes. And they're saying, ammonia, ammonia.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. yeah there could be some other other kind of solvent that we would have no way of or had not even thought about much less thought about enough to form formulate a plan to create a detector that might be able to pick up on that um in some way or as you know spectro- spectrometer or something um. So I, I think it'll be very Okay, so you're no sure. fun. You just
1: want to fix Earth. You know, that's not fun at all. <laughs> well, want, but uh, I'd we,
3: like to <laughs> fix Earth, and I'd like to explore for the sake of exploring, not for the sake of changing to fit our standards or what we, what we think we would need.
1: Uh Nagi, we got to take another break. When we come back to our third segment, uh, we might have to go into a, a lightning round uh, so we can get more of those questions in. Uh, you're watching or listening to Star Talk. Cosmic Queries. And this is all about the search for life on exoplanets when we return.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, plus
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
5: In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
4: Hey, we'd like to give a Patreon shout-out to the following Patreon patrons, Jacob Fisher, COCua Hufganga, and Thomas Cochran guys without you we couldn't do this show so we are very grateful and anyone listening who would like their very own patreon shout out please go to patreon.com startalk radio and support us
1: Star Talk, Cosmic Queries Edition. We're talking about exoplanets and the possibility of them harboring life with one of the world's experts on that very subject, and it's Omawa Shields. Omawa, welcome to Star Talk. And Nagin, of course, my co host, my guest co host for this, and you've got all the questions with you. But before we go into that, uh, Nagin, how do people find you online?
2: Oh my gosh! You can find me at Nagin Farsad, N e g i n f a r s a d, and uh, and uh, and anything of, separating
1: your first and last name? No,
2: or? just right through on Instagram, like on through. TikTok, on okay. Twitter, uh, and oh, oh, the fun you will have uh, reading through my things. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs>
5: we'll be the judge
1: of that, okay? <laughs> and Omar,
2: okay.
1: what what are, other than your website where you're you're um, encouraging girls to rise up? To their fullest potential. Uh, how else might we find you on social media?
3: Yes. Well, you can uh, find my faculty website at just Google UCI and my name. You can put in my first name only, Aomawa, and I should. Yeah, come that's up. a
1: good. That's, that'll find you anywhere in the world. I that's bet. right. <laughs> and then a O M A W A. That's Aomoa. Yeah, that's all. So you can just drop your drop shields. Who needs shields? We have we have like Prince, Madonna,
2: Share. Cher. Cher, I about it.
1: That, Nagin, let's start doing it. With, that's how we'll do it
2: with it from
3: now okay. on. Okay. And then my Twitter handle, it. my Twitter handle is also my first name only, at AOMOA.
1: As it should be. Okay. So, Nagin, let's, let's let's see how many of these we can knock out in this third and final segment. And by the way, I think all these questions, we're now only taking questions from Patreon, mem- uh, from our Patreon uh, support. So, if you want if you want to be able to ask a question, you know, jump on in. Join okay. the
2: Patreon. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael Maine, one of your members asks, "It is my understanding that volatile magnetic fields of red dwarf stars periodically cause a large star solar flares which adversely affect planets within the star's goldilocks zone. Is it possible for life to survive on these star-blasted worlds?" Um, I didn't understand that question at all. So this is where <laughs> your And I was going to say my response was actor, to say,
1: Take that, Omar. <laughs> what do you think <laughs> of that? Because you're studying low mass stars, which are cool mm-hmm. and red, and mm-hmm. the, they're very susceptible to, to flares and things. Yes. So how do you get out of that one? I think we yeah. backed her into a corner, Nagin. So let's oh, see what happens. I'm going to do my
3: best. Oh, I feel it. Yeah. This is a very popular question that I get at Science Talks, which I now welcome instead of uh, fear, as we talked about before. <laughs> I love, mm-hmm. I love the questions. And... Yes. Yeah, so the one thing about these low mass stars, these red, cool M dwarf or red dwarf stars, um, they have a lot of advantages. They're 70% of all stars. It's easier to detect planets around these stars. They live forever, like even forever, forever compared to regular stars. Like trillions of years. Trillions. So no, no red dwarf stars have ever died. That's how long their lifetimes are. Their lifetimes are longer than the current age of the universe. So no stars, no red dwarf stars have ever died.
1: But So it seems to me you could evolve some badass creatures if you were around for that long, right, <laughs> on a planet.
3: Yeah, so that's the other. Another advantage is that they would permit long time scales for both planetary and biological evolution. Um, but when they have these long lifetimes, that means that this, like, so all stars are really active when they're young. Um, and think of this as like a terrible twos phase for those who have kids. I have a daughter who's um, three and a half, and like, yeah, her terrible twos phase is still going on.
2: <laughs> but, like, it
1: became terrible you... threes. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
3: that's right. <laughs> but the, the terrible twos phase for red dwarf stars can last as long as a billion years. Like, that's That's some terrible twos phase. And during that time, the planets around these stars in this so-called Goldilocks zone, habitable zone, that region around a star where a planet could be not too hot or not too cold for water to stay liquid on the surface. That's what we call the Goldilocks zone. Planets in that zone could be pelted by all of this high energy radiation during this terrible twos phase. This, um, and that, that could threaten the atmospheres of these planets. It could threaten biology. We know that, for example, UV radiation is harmful to biology. That's why we wear sunscreen. Um, but think of it as like UV radiation on steroids um, for life on a planet orbiting a red dwarf star, and that could be. But I'll say that so that could be bad for sure, and that's certainly a, one of the largest disadvantages that people have brought up for for life orbiting. Um, on I feel a butt coming.
1: Okay, but, but
3: <laughs> okay. if you're. We know that there's tons of life in the ocean, so you could still have life doing its thing and being nice and sheltered from UV radiation if it was at the bottom of the ocean or even just a couple of hundred meters below the surface. Um, And, you know, there's that terrible 2 phase, even though it lasts as long as a billion years, it doesn't last forever. Um, And it could be that atmospheres are thick enough, for example, to withstand that radiation and we've done some studies to show that under certain circumstances, you might not, for example, deplete an entire ozone layer by that high-energy radiation pelting the atmosphere. You could still have some left over. So it depends is the short answer to that, okay. to that question. All
1: right. So it's not as bad as – so it is real that these are threats, but those threats don't exhaust all possible ways you could survive them. Correct. Yeah, okay. All right. All right, keep it going. Nagin.
2: All right. Charles Maloof asks, if Earth was about to be destroyed and you had to board a ship bound for another planet where you would spend the rest of your life, which destination would you choose at the t- ticket counter? And you should assume <laughs> there's already a habitable facility there and travel speed is a significant percentage of C, so you don't age much from the journey. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs>
1: They, they got this all figured out, they huh? Sure huh?
2: Do. Okay. They sure so well.
1: do. So, Omawa, what is your Gosh. favorite planet? That's really what that comes down yes, to. Yes,
3: yes, it does. Um, I have a soft spot for a planet called Kepler 62F. And I say that wistfully because this planet is 1,200 light years away. Um, and so it's very unlikely. Wait, so that- you're
1: leaving the solar system for this destination? <laughs> I, was that allowed, Nagin, in this setup?
3: <laughs> we'd have to. We'd have to. We're going to another. Oh, you! I kept thinking exoplanets, but yeah, because be. you have
1: exoplanets on the brain, but that's okay. We'll take said, it. Okay, I'll so take it.
3: Could be. I guess it could be. Yeah, like, within our solar system, like a. Yeah, it's still a good one. give me give
1: me both answers. So, in the solar system, where would it be?
3: Um, well, Jupiter's moon Europa is certainly a place that everyone is excited about, and I've always loved because we're fairly certain that there is an ocean there, except the ocean is. Below potentially kilometers thick ice, um, so a very very thick ice shell on top, and then and then a
1: global wait, wait. salty wait, ocean. Oomawa, Oomawa, you're thinking about you're thinking like a scientist, all right? You're thinking you go there because that'd be cool to study it. Hey, it sounds like he just said, "Where do you want to go to live?"
2: Yeah, where uh, are we hanging out? Where are you, you going to hang out? Doing, Thank where you. are you brunching? Like, <laughs> where are you doing girls' weekends? Like, what you know?
3: On another planet. Yeah, Um, I always think about that on our planet. It's funny. I, I, ever since I had a child, it's like I don't want. I don't. I wouldn't want to leave. Like I wouldn't want to leave to go. Bring your
1: kids with you, and then, and if you can survive them saying, "Are we there yet?" You know, then it'll be (laughs) fine. (laughs)
3: <laughs> okay, I'm gonna choose. I'm gonna choose Neptune because it's my daughter's favorite planet, and she she loves it because it's blue. Oh.
0: Um,
3: and we haven't talked about ammonia and how that does that and all that, but just because it's blue, and I think that'd be fun. Um, I, then, I would
1: take any moon of Saturn because then you can look up and see Saturn.
3: In the oh sky. yeah, gorgeous, that's
1: gotta gorgeous. Be, that's got to be beautiful. Yeah, so tell me more be. about Kepler 62 L.
3: Kepler 62 F is this? Oh, F. Yes, it's uh, twelve hundred light years away. It's one of a five planet system orbiting this this K star. So a little bit a little bit cooler than the sun, not as cool as a red dwarf star. Um, and it's really it's one of the first planets that we were able to. My team was actually able to look at how the gravitational interactions between this planet and, and its siblings, so this planet is not alone in its system, it's got four other siblings that are also revol- you know, going around Kepler-62, its, its parent star, how those interactions, how they can push and pull on each other, and how that affects the climate of this planet. And that's what I study, is how the, the climate of exoplanets um, is determined by a myriad of factors. Including how planets push and pull on each other. And so this was the. Okay, first so you're
1: planet. biased because, like, you studied the damn thing. This I is like, did. You, you take ownership. You've already planted the flag, the Almawa <laughs> okay. Shields planted flag. My virtual That's flag. what. Okay.
3: Yeah. And so I'd love to be able to go and see and test some of the theories and predictions we
2: made um, on cool. this
1: planet. All right. All right. Again, thinking like a scientist, not just hanging out on the beach.
2: How much (laughs) would you age? I know, that's (laughs) all I'm thinking about. (laughs) How much would you age, though, going to that planet, to that exoplanet?
3: Well, I mean, we're assuming this question said a few percentage, a few percent of the speed of light. I mean, if we we were somehow able to uh, obtain light speed, um, it would still take us 1,200 years to get there and 1,200 years to get back. Um so we'd be Wait, wait you wouldn't
1: age but we'd all be long dead and all you everyone would have forgotten <laughs> right. about you if you come back true, to Earth true, yes. So just For go and, and just don't come back and you're you're cool you're fine. <laughs> That's right. So Nagin, keep them coming.
2: Here we go. Chaz uh, Jen Carelli says, "When looking for other habitable planets, do we also look for signs of other life that's not carbon-based? I know silicon-based life has been talked about, but curious if the signs of other-based life is easy to scope out. I love this question because I'm always like, are you looking for carbon, and then also like gummy bears, and also <laughs> like what? I mean, what is the list of the things that you're looking for? You know? Yeah. Are
1: we and how biased are we in this in the in these criteria?"
3: We're very biased. I mean, our our n, if in scientific parlance, our n is one, meaning we have one example of a planet that we know is habitable, Earth. That's it. And so we're we're using everything we know life needs on Earth as our metric for where else to look for life, what to look for on those planets. Um, But that's and this is where the water
1: bias comes in, right? Because we all need water.
3: Yeah, so and you say, well, we need
1: water, so clearly everybody else needs water.
3: Yeah. And there's three things. There's three fundamental requirements that we've identified that life needs on Earth. And it's liquid water. It's an energy source. And in some cases, that's the sun. In other cases, it might be um, just chemicals for life that's underneath at the bottom of the ocean and doesn't have access to, to sunlight. So stellar or chemical energy. And some sort of environment to form complex organic molecules from like uh, elements essential to biology like sulfur and phosphorus and oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and hydrogen. So that
1: environment would have to be like the right temperature and the right pressure to sustain big molecules
3: to experiment
1: and make anything complex.
3: This is why water is the most critical of those three. Because a terrestrial planet, by nature, has some kind of energy source and the basic building blocks in some form that are needed for life. But what isn't as common is liquid water. And you can see that really in our own solar system. Um, and that's what we know all life on earth needs is liquid water. And so we we use that as our you know as our criterion. But as this question points out, it is limiting um, because there might be other ways. And there are astrobiologists and an astrobiologist is someone It could be an astronomer, but it could also be an oceanographer. It could be a geologist. Astrobiologists are are very interdisciplinary. They're using their primary field of expertise to address questions related to life elsewhere, to answer the question of, you know, are we alone? Um, what's the origin, evolution, distribution, and future of life in the universe.
1: Um, so Nagin, I want to find a planet that doesn't depend on water, that it that it, it depends on wine. That would be an interesting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> Grapes but...
1: are a big industry there. Well,
2: <laughs> no, actually,
1: wine is mostly water, of course. So I I, I kid, I kid. So Nagin, we got to go, it's serious uh, lightning round now. So Aomua, uh, you've got to, Answer questions in one word or one sentence at oh most. Oh my gosh! Okay? Yes, let okay. go. okay. Yes, Nadine, no. Nadine, go.
2: Shayna Briscoe asks: Is the event horizon of a black hole static, or does it vary with an object's ability to produce thrust away from the singularity? Like bait, singularity. Basically, are they all wobbly, or are they perfect spheres? Um, I'm a
3: planet person. Next. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
1: So I can address parts of that. If the black hole is rotating, the, the event horizon is not a sphere. It takes on other shapes that in some cases resemble a donut. So um, that's all. It's, it's the rotation that will alter the shape of the of the event horizon. Otherwise, it's just going to be a perfect sphere around the singularity.
2: Um, okay. Uh, Heidi Wagemans asks, are we able to get to other habitable planets if the universe expands so fast by the way, from the the uh, um, Heidi is from the Netherlands. Oh, cool! Mm-hmm. Ooh, um, yes. The universe
3: is expanding. Um, however, we, especially because of recent recent times, we now have a new mission, a relatively new mission called the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. We call it TESS for short. It's the successor to NASA's Kepler mission, which stared at one patch of sky for about 10 years and just kept taking pictures looking for planets that passed in front of their host star from our viewing angle. And we actually looked, we saw little dips in the light of the star when the planet passed in front of those stars. So TESS is actually an all-sky survey, and it's looking at stars in the nearby solar neighborhood. So because of that, we're finding a lot more uh, a lot more planets, first off, around these cool, small red stars, because they're the most uh, abundant stars in the solar neighborhood anyway. And those planets are much closer to us. They're going to be easier to follow up on, to look at with next generation telescopes, and hopefully one day to try to journey to. Okay,
1: that wasn't a one word or one sentence.
2: <laughs> I couldn't just, figure I could out just... how else to
3: do it.
1: also uh, the expansion of the universe our galaxy will hang tight for a while even in the expanding universe so I think we're okay and it's great to hear that we're discovering many more that are nearby in case we're going to make that escape list
0: (laughs) 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 again. round up the
1: billionaires and we'll escape keep
2: the beach destinations in mind when Mm -hmm. you're putting together that list you guys
1: Okay, let's get one more. One, one more. more. We Nikki. have from
2: Ashley Kosdorf, um, a Floridian. I've been wondering what a black hole does for the universe from a circle of life aspect. Most things on Earth are recycled. However, black holes seem to only consume. Mm. They're not, yeah. Black holes aren't recycling. What's up with that? <laughs> are they are they the like the landfill of of the sky or what? Did I is that accurate? That is so funny. I
3: just watched. I was just watching um Loki, the, uh, the Marvel show Loki, the other day, and there's this yeah, whole, Loki's
1: Thor's brother. Thor's brother, right? yeah, the yeah, god right. of
3: mischief. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's sort of taking a moral turn in this. I won't give it away. But, um, but there's this whole notion of like what comes after, and and this creature that this void that kind of consumes all matter. And um, I mean, I think the answer, My, I guess it's my three-word answer would be, I don't know, and I believe we don't know.
1: Right, so the two I don't knows that a scientist can utter, one of them is they don't know, and the other i don't know is no one knows cuz we yes. don't have the answer yet at all no exactly. matter who you ask so
2: but i love how like basically this was a re- this is really judgmental towards black holes <laughs> you know and we haven't i haven't heard very many uh, approaches to black holes that are like you know they just consume consume they don't care about anybody else you know no i
1: think so here's the issue here's selfish how black, holes, black win. holes
2: selfish black holes
1: here's how they win the day the reason why we recycle is because we don't want what we just use to, to litter the environment. That's the only motivation to recycle right. uh, as, as in addition to whether the material is is, is renewable, right but that, that's why if it's if it's not renewable, you get to use it again and there you don't and you, it, you don't discard it on the, on, the, on the shoreline. A black hole. Eats it, you will never find it on anybody's shore after that. Mm. You won't find it anywhere. It's not in landfill. You're right, and again, it is its own landfill. Uh, but, yeah. But it's ta- you, the smells don't come out. It's not unsightly. It's not a not-in-my-backyard thing. In fact, everyone should have a black hole in their backyard.
3: Well, and there's a black I mean, hole at the center of every galaxy,
1: right? There, so maybe that's, the, that's it. Omawa, here's what we do. So <laughs> when we have galactic federations— That's the garbage chute for all the trash that we collect in the galaxy. I like it.
2: Can I also just say, we don't know that if in black holes there isn't like a giant Etsy shop that's selling (laughs) repurposed, repurposed Repurposed. from stars, renovated handbags. Okay. So that it's a possibility. You know?
1: (laughs) Actually, some models for the interior of black holes have them open up an entire other space-time continuum so that, in fact, things that fall through intact could emerge on the other side, separate from our universe, uh, entering a whole other universe created by the black hole itself. And I'm surprised that I, I, there's not as much science fiction that has exploited that understanding of black holes as I think should. But anyhow, yeah. guys, we got to call it quits <laughs> there. I, I, Alma, I, this, you you've been away too long. Okay, and <laughs> delighted to have you. Uh, this is a very popular topic, and we, and we have a lot of interest, deep interest in this. And maybe we can get you back on and continue it, Or especially when, when Tess, uh, is Tess, uh, what's the status of Tess right now?
3: Tess is flying, and they've actually found many potentially habitable planets now. So, now so maybe have a we can get in,
1: sort of an update on working. Tess. Yeah, because we didn't specifically talk about tests in this episode, mm-hmm. but uh, Transiting Explorer Survey Telescope.
3: Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite.
1: Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we'd welcome uh, just an update on what some of the findings are from that next generation of our search for exoplanets. I so, uh, Aumua, thank you for being on Star Talk.
2: Thank you for having me, everybody.
1: All right. And Nagin, always good to have you.
2: Oh my God, thanks so much for having me. I learned something today.
1: Okay, that, that's what this is about. So, but <laughs> I you learned said that it as though. are
2: like real jerk offs. That's oh. what I heard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, Nagin, the way you said that, so other times I did this, I didn't learn a damn thing. Uh... That, that was kind of, you copped the attitude there, admit <laughs> it.
2: <laughs> well, Oma I, I, really used her skills on me. I, I really, you know, I really felt like I got something.
1: So, this has been Star Talk Cosmic Queries. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. You're a personal astrophysicist. As always, I bid you to keep looking up.
0: Pulling up to Mickey
4: D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me.